Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. Today, I'm with Glenda Lee Hoffman, and ah, there's so much here. There's so much here today that I am overflowing with excitement for what this book has done for me. Written over 20 years ago, I actually stumbled upon this work this past May, very much guided by the hand of my father, who is on the other side. But I am so clear that he had a hand in this because (laughs) many of you know that I have this relationship to my dad where he flickers the lights in the kitchens, basically, of every home I've ever lived in. So I kind of always know when there's a flickering light, wherever I am, that he is around. It just so happened that this particular free book depot that I stopped in in Kennebunk, Maine, also had the very Adiago for Strings was playing in the background, which was one of his favorite compositions that was playing the entire time he was in hospice in our home when he passed away when I was 20 years old. So in addition to the book basically jumping out off the shelf, brand new copy, never even a page been turned, the lights started flickering as I held it in my hands and the music played in the background. So I took it home and I began to read. And I'll tell you that this book brought me to tears on many occasions because it's so incredibly beautifully written and explains something that has never made sense to me from a perspective that opened my eyes in a way that I can no longer unsee it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this book before we welcome her on the show. First of all, I want to say that the beginning of the book of Genesis tells us that Eve was created from Adam's rib, and after eating the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge, she was responsible for the fall of humans and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. But is Eve's subservience to Adam and her responsibility for the fall the true picture of this first woman? Well, through many episodes, we've heard from scholars and from other women who have been dedicated to revealing more. We know that that is not the truth. And today we're going to embody yet another perspective that will literally blow your mind in the best way. The Secret Dowry of Eve presents a revolutionary interpretation of this story. Using her lifelong study of Kabbalah along with current scientific understanding of the four cortexes of the human brain, Glinda Lee Hoffman shows that the story of the Garden of Eden is actually an instruction manual that explains our biological imperative for transcendence and wholeness, and that Eve's contribution to meeting this imperative is essential. 
Adam represents the human with a fully developed neocortex. He is outward-looking intellect, capable of assessing the world, of labeling all he sees around him. But it is actually Eve's dowry, the inner world of the feminine, the function of the brain's frontal lobes that makes Adam complete and makes all humans complete. Eating the fruit opens Eve's eyes to inner awareness, a feminine awareness of every possible possibility within us, the opposite of Adam's male orientation to what is outside ourselves. The secret dowry of Eve offers a new revelation in an old story. It is Eve who promotes balance and wholeness through her ability to integrate the feminine and masculine aspects of human awareness. Understanding Eve's role in the development of consciousness is the key to empowering ourselves and restoring wholeness to our world. So what I want to add here is yet another perspective or lens to look from, and it's actually the lens of a fairy tale. So bear with me. The human brain is an amazing piece of bio-machinery. It comes equipped to help us achieve our dreams, and Eve is central to that. However, Eve, or the frontal lobes as the newest part of the brain to emerge, is dwarfed in size by the older parts of the brain and drowned out by their corresponding neurochemistries of fear, shame, and status sinking. Her position in the brain is much like Cinderella in her own house, bossed around by her quote-unquote ugly stepsisters and diabolical stepmother. Eve, or Cinderella, is the sweetness of self-discovery inherent in the prefrontal cortex. Her stepfamily represents the older parts of the brain that emerged during reptilian mammalian and hominoid evolution who continually try to wrestle their own agendas into human interactions. It is this conflict which we view through human drama and this mess which we all must contend with as we attempt to get ourselves to the ball of personal and social awareness. Wow. Please join me in welcoming the amazing and incredible Glinda Lee Hoffman. Hey, Glenda Lee. Well, thank you. That was an amazing introduction. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for helping to write it. And this book, my gosh, I just, the very first thing I want to ask you is just why, how did this story become so important to you? Oh, that's a long story. I, it actually started when I was five years old. I heard a voice. I think I tell that story in the book. I heard a voice when I was attempting to relight a fire in the fireplace with a clear liquid, which I had seen my father light the fire with. And my clear liquid was water, which was not the clear liquid he was using. But I was so disappointed by the sputtering of the fire that I heard a voice. And the voice said very clearly, things are not what they should be, or things are not what they appear to be. Yeah. And that disruption, I'd never experienced anything like that. I was five years old. I had no idea how to interpret it, but it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And then later when I was 11, 
I had a full blown revelation, literal visitation from Jesus. I talked to Jesus and I realized from this conversation that we had that I wanted what he had. And I somehow intuitively understood that what he had was clarity. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it for myself. It was his clarity that allowed him to empower himself with the awareness to know what to do during situations. And I wanted it for myself because I wanted his power of trust, self-trust. And I hung on to that. That became my intention. Although I didn't know, the vision that I received in that revelation is that you attain this level of trust through clarity. And so all through my life, my older brains, my older, the older parts of my brains were constantly presenting me with the messages from the world. And I was trying to sift through them. And it was a very messy process. I was married very young, got a divorce, bounced around at ski resorts, you know, drank too much. And then one day I picked up a book and it happened to be Ram Dass's book be here now. Mm -hmm. And there was a page and it said, the teacher will appear when the student is ready. I'd never heard anything like that before, but I just hung on to that. And within a couple of weeks, I reconnected with a woman whose son I had been very close to, and he had recently died. And she had connected with a group following a teacher. And I went to their group and I just felt this immediate, okay, I need to be here. And within a year, that group had morphed into a community and had purchased a piece of property in the Santa Cruz Mountains, 160 acres, that was all set up to be lived in. It had dormitories. It was built by another person who called it Satori. There was a big lecture hall and a sanctuary and two sets of dormitories and 60 of us moved in together on the same day. Oh my gosh. And it was there that a man that I had previously met and brought with me came to me with a book, The Cipher of Genesis by Carlos Suarez. He said, here, you might like this. And I couldn't put it down, but I didn't understand a word, not one word, but I was so drawn to it. And I, I couldn't figure out why I was drawn to it or what I was supposed to do with it. It didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. But I, somehow, I got myself to the place. And, you know, there was, I didn't understand it then, but I do understand it now. The intentions that were set through the five-year-old experience and the 11-year-old, they were intentions that were driving me. They were driving, and they just kept saying, go sit down with that book. Go sit down with that book. Go sit down with that book. And so I got to the place where I, I realized that the information was so overwhelming, I could only concentrate on one word. So I chose the very first word of Genesis, which is six letters, Beit, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yod, Tav. Now, the Kabbalah that I was studying is based on a study of the letters, not as letters, but as patterns of energy. That's very difficult for someone to hear. Okay, what's a pattern of energy? That just sounds like blah, blah, blah. 
the patterns of energy cannot even be revealed <laughs> unless they are presented to your mind over and over and over and over through these definitions that Carlos Suarez was presenting in this book. So my only choice was to go through the book, write down every instance where he took the letters one by one and defined them, and then write that down, and then write every other definition that he had down. And I did that, had several notebooks. But when it came to these six letters that start Genesis, Beit Resh, Olive, Sheen, Yod, Tav, I studied those six letters for nine months. And that's all I studied. And I could not get anywhere. It just blew my mind. I mean, I bought a, I don't know if you know what a Strong's Concordance is, but it's a very big book. Okay. It's about 12 inches tall. It's about four inches thick. And it's about eight inches wide, maybe 10 inches wide. And it is, it takes every single word in the Bible and translates it into Hebrew and Greek. And so I would take the letters that Carlos Juarez was presenting. I would translate it into English and then I would try to make this bridge between what the concordance was saying and what Carlos Suarez was saying. And sometimes I could bridge it and sometimes I couldn't, but you know, that was another exercise that I did. Anyway, nine months after I started doing this, I was driving down the road one day and my brain literally exploded and I had to pull over to the side of the road because I saw what those six letters had been trying to tell me all along. And what they had been trying to tell me, they showed me. And what they showed me was the explosion that started the universe. The explosion that in Genesis is referred to as let there be light. The explosion that, that the physicists, the cosmologists call the little atom that exploded into our universe. It was an explosion of opposing energies that work together, that always work together. And what these six letters are, are, are three pairs of opposites. Okay. They are three pairs of opposites that work together. And what they were creating in this Beit Resh Aleph Shin Yad Tav was the actual seed of life in the universe. And that's what they showed me with this revelation that cannot be described in words. All I could do was pull the car over to the side of the road and watch. And I suppose I watched for an hour. I don't have any idea. It was, it was timeless, but it was wave after wave after wave of this is how life begins on the universe. And this is the secret to understanding where we're all going. And where we're all going, the, the message of the central message is the universe is full of fertility. Mm. It wants to fertilize every possibility it can. That's the message. That's the message. The universe is bursting with fertility. So the way that nature shows that is little seeds bursting out of cracks in the sidewalk. Anywhere there is the tiniest possibility for life, it will come forth. 
because of this amazing fertility that is built into the interaction of these opposing energies, figuring out how to work together to best produce the state. It's a state called all possible possibilities. And we human beings happen actually have that life in the human brain now as finally we are the final species in that long range of you know 13 billion years of evolution that we have the the final piece that puts the all possible possibilities together because the human brain can literally change forever okay there's so much i want to go back and dig into because this is so fascinating but i want to start with just how problematic so many interpretations are that don't take this into consideration in terms of the initial is it ciphers like like what what was the the cipher of genesis is the study of the genesis story through the what's called the hebrew letters before they were Hebrew letters, they weren't called the Hebrew letters. They were called the letters of light. The letters of light. And the Hebrews and most Jewish people still celebrate the festivity of lights or something. I, I don't know if that is a Hanukkah or not. I haven't mm-hmm. gone through much of Jewish tradition, but I do know that the menorah with the seven or nine candles is based on the study of Kabbalah because not only is Kabbalah uh, the study of the letters as different patterns of energy, there's a chart that goes with Kabbalah and the chart is three rows of nine letters each, which makes 27. So the top row is the archetypal energy forms. The middle row is the mundane level of energy forms And the bottom row is the cosmic level of energy forms. And the seven and the nine relate very specifically to the feminine energies that produce all the possibilities. I mean, it's just so cool. And I also love how literally you had to pull your car over to the side of the road as it was making, as it was like revealing itself to you. Yeah, yeah. So there is this, and and all that you're expressing is in this, what I call a quantum realm. It's happening outside of time. It's an expression of a cosmic energy that suddenly like awakens within you and makes sense in a way that it never could have made sense before and that you were driving. So you're some part of your brain had to be occupied for the other intelligence to reveal itself. So which I'm sure you'll get into. Yes. I studied a little bit about Nikola Tesla, the man who created alternating current, the the machines that harness alternating current electricity. Now, Nikola Tesla studied everything he could about mathematics and electrons and electricity, and he crammed his brain, and he's genius, he crammed his brain through all of this academic information but he couldn't get anywhere until four years later when he was walking through a park in Budapest and he was reciting 
poetry with a friend of his, and all of a sudden he just stopped. He just stopped and he looked up in the sky and he said, there it is. And what was happening in his mind was an alternating current generator. And he could see every single piece, every screw, every part of this generator, he could see how it was working. And the human mind is made to do this. It is made to take intention, which is just a desire to know something, a desire to have some kind of information to be something. It takes that energy and it pushes you to gather all the materials you will need to start this spark going. And then it puts all this into kind of like a pressure cooker where you bake it for a while and then you have to relax and let it do its work. And then it just comes. Right. When you least expect it. I know that we're going to get into this metaphor because it's it's woven throughout your book in so many different ways. But would you say then that the intention is the seed? Yes, it is definitely. It's the seed of this thing that you're d- driving towards. And so all creative principle yeah. to go back to what you were shown starts as this seed. Yes. So I'm just going to talk about it in layman's terms. No, go ahead. So I was sharing with Glenda Lee before we hopped on that she was sharing with me that it's it took her the better part of 20 years to write this book in which I say like, oh my gosh, thank God, because I'm over here so on myself about why yeah. why is it taking me so long? And yet there's been this this wiser part of me that is still saying, Monica, you are still collecting the supplies. You are still, just as you just described it, you are still making the space in which you will then create. You are still planting the seeds and you must be patient. And I'll tell you, my father used to say, you were called out of school that day that they were passing out patients or whatever it was. But like, that is not my strong point. That is just not it. That is not it. So, but what else I love about this, and you may or may not know about something called the gene keys, but I talk about it a lot with my audience. And it's this idea that we all have these gifts within us, just to make it really simple, that we all have these gifts within us. But in order for us to access the gift, we have to contemplate the shadow of before we get to the gift. And mm-hmm. then once we, I see it again as the seed, we're all planted with these seeds, these gifts. And if we can bring our awareness to it, that's the, the awareness is what creates the activation. And then we contemplate. And it's this idea of, well, contemplation is different from meditation. It's different from concentration. It's contemplation. And it's also, we also have to stretch our imagination because it's stretching the imagination that kind of needs the stiffer parts of the brain to let go Mm -hmm. any kind of rigidities that are blocking something. Well, and I love that in the, in the beginning, you know, when I was reading your bio, I look at, well, what are the rigidities? And I think that uh, I was pointing, and you were also pointing to the neurochemistries of fear, shame, status seeking. So there are certain ways that not only is the brain become atrophied or rigid, 
but it also has these reptilian aspects and other aspects to it that keep us in this survival mode. Yeah. So Glenda, I'll take it back to the gene keys for a brief second, just for my listeners, and then let's continue. But contemplation becomes this way that we can move around in the world. It's on the back burner. On the back burner, right? And it just kind of all of a sudden, it's, oh, I get it. I get it. So take us back to, I think that this part is going to be important for us to understand. As a woman, okay, I want to understand your proclivity to... I don't know, like, how was your experience growing up? I often talk about how so many Mm. women are in what I call the trance of unworthiness. And so much of this is, I say, due to all of the many stories and messages that were microdosed from the time that we're born. Yeah. And so, again, I look at your book as a massive trance breaker because it reveals the feminine in and its capacity in such a unique and different way than we've ever thought about it before. And so I first want to know, what were you looking for? What were you personally seeking liberation from? I was very aware, I don't know why, but I was very aware that boys had not earned their status. And I didn't understand that. And it drove me crazy. I was like, why do boys get to be on the swim team and girls don't? Girls can swim. Why does everybody want a son first? What is this magic about men? I don't think they're so magical, but why is there this, this magic status that they haven't earned? And, you know, the, the haven't earned part, I wasn't really aware that that's what it was. But it, that came later. But I was always bumping my head against it and getting nowhere, getting absolutely nowhere. In fact, my own little part of this was trying to make myself perfect because in some way somebody was going to pat me on the head. In the fourth grade, I had, (laughs) boy, this brings us memory. I think I tell this story in the book, the California map test. And I... In California, you have to take a California map test where you're given us in the fourth grade, you're given an outline of the state of California with dots where all the major cities are. And your job is simply to write the name of the city next to the dot. Well, I wrote all the names of the cities next to the dot because I had them perfectly, but I had forgotten how to spell Monterey. I didn't know if it was spelled with an E-Y or a Y at the very end. So I snuck my desk open and I opened my book. There was the spelling of Monterey, E-Y. Okay, good. I can put E-Y up there because I was a little perfectionist. Boy, the teacher came along. She slammed the top of the lid of my desk down on my fingers and said, you're cheating. And she shamed me in front of the whole class. And I didn't figure this out for years and years and years. I'll make sense in hindsight. Uh, Yeah, I had gotten straight A's on every test I'd ever taken in that class. I was a perfect student for her to to suddenly think I was cheating because I had my book open. She never questioned me ever. She just assumed. And that was a huge turning point in my life. I decided, woo, I am not going to give myself to academic learning. 
That's mm-hmm. not going to happen for me. I'm not going to put myself in that position anymore where somebody can interpret what's going on with me without ever asking me and play the, this whole dominance game and not include me. So I'm just not going to play the game. So I decided right then and there that I would get bees. Bees are okay. In fact, bees make you invisible. You're good enough. You're not perfect. You're good enough. And you're not going to come under anyone's ire and everybody's going to think you're okay. So that's what I did. Oh my God. I didn't realize how that was going to feed into my later studies, but when it came time to go to college, I was just not interested. Couldn't hold my interest at all. Nothing could hold my interest. I was floundering. I got A's on everything. I I was in my fifth year of French after taking four years of French in high school, but it didn't mean anything to me. So I got married at 19 and dropped out. I just wasn't interested. And of course, that was another, it was just a mess. It was a horrible mess. Now, this is, all of this is Cinderella. Yes. <laughs> Cinderella, you know, hanging out by the fireplace. Oh, woe is me. Sweeping up the ashes while her reptilian, mammalian, and hominid brains are, see, screaming at her. You know, you need to be more this, more that. You, you know, I wasn't going to be an academic, so I had to be a wife. And then when I got divorced after five years, not only was I not a wife, I had failed at being a wife. Oh, my God. So I was a failure as a student, failure as a wife. There wasn't much more I could fail at. So, okay, what does this have to do with Genesis? Those were the other parts of my brain screaming at me. And I had this little flicker. In fact, during that time I was going through the divorce, was when, I don't even know if you remember this, but posters, uh, giant posters of kittens hanging on to a big knot that was tied in a rope Mm -hmm. were really, they were everywhere. And they said, when all else fails, tie a knot and hang on. Mm -hmm. But that was basically my survival, (laughs) my survival message, because I had no idea what to do. I, I wasn't made for this world. I, it, it wasn't going to happen for me. Well, then, of course, after my divorce, I ended up with a group in Santa Cruz Mountains, and I ended up studying the Kabbalah, which I had no idea what to do with, but cram all this information that I didn't know what it was saying into my head. And boom, you know, nine months later, nine months of not knowing anything, Except here's the thing I learned about living in a community within the the world was blocked out. I didn't have to deal with the world anymore. I just had to deal with the commune. And that was easy. I I just had to do my job. My job happened to be in the kitchen. So this was a very structured community. We didn't have a lot of free time. We were up at 530, meditating for an hour, into the kitchen, fixing breakfast, taking, we had several foster homes. We had foster children. We had our own school. There were, I don't, 49 adults and 13 children, I think, I can't, of our own. Anyway, it was a very structured environment. And it was within that structured environment that allowed me to have all this energy that I could put into studying the Kabbalah. And I was the only one doing it. Other people were studying other spiritual traditions like this Course in Miracles and Joel Goldsmith's work. But I was the only one with this book. Everyone else had, it started as a class, but 
after a couple of weeks, everybody else dropped out because it's too hard. There was no way to study it. Yeah. But it, you know, it had a hold on me that wasn't going to let go. And so once I left the Christ circle and that was another, I was there until I wasn't. And it was a four year period. I now call that my undergraduate work. Mm-hmm. But when, okay. <laughs> yeah, when, when I left, I knew what the Kabbalah was saying. I was very clear on that. I knew that I knew what it was saying to me and I knew it was time to leave the Christ circle. What to do after that, I didn't have a clue, but I knew that I was very clear about that. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, I just want to thank you for just sharing that vulnerable story because I can so relate to it. And I'm sure so many of our listeners can. I just want to raise my hand and say that I thought I was stupid. Literally, mm-hmm. I thought I was stupid until probably just a few years ago, On to be honest. But I too, it was just literally when you said that, like, I wasn't made for this world. Like, that that, that was my mantra. Like, I, I don't belong here. Like, I wasn't made for this world. And similarly to you, I was like, what the hell is so special about him? Like, he doesn't even know how to friggin' clean up after himself. He's not even like, like, you know what I mean? Like, there were things that I was just so confused about. Yeah. And it never made any sense to me. As you're saying, I now am with a, a man who is very kind of in his sacred masculine. I get it. I totally get it. But growing up, I was like, this is some bullshit. Like, this is some <laughs> bullshit. Yeah. There is something so upside down about this. Like I can dance circles around him, whoever him is. Okay. Whoever him was. Yeah. My insight to that was uh, I took one break from the community that I was living at when I was studying Kabbalah and I moved to Portland for a very short amount of time. And I worked at a hot dog stand on the corner. The thing that interested me most was this hot dog stand was run by this amazing woman who also worked for an attorney. And I went to this attorney's office and I can't remember how this all came about, but the the attorney was playing golf and the woman working in the office was taking care of all the appointments and all the other stuff that actually needed to be done. And I came away with this, this whole perception of the pattern of how men run things but it's really the women behind them that do all the work. Mm-hmm. Like, well, like women really run the world. Yeah, but they don't get any credit for it. Mm-mm. And that became very clear to me. And I realized that there was some kind of old boys network that got them into these positions in the first place. And then women were always subjugated to the lower status, even though they were better at running the nuts and bolts of the situation while the man was off playing golf. And at that point, I stopped believing in the patriarchal pattern. To me, it was just a lie. Mm -hmm. It had always been a lie. And I was going to just keep uncovering more of that. Now, what the Kabbalah taught me is that men and women in proper relationship feed each other. They nurture each other. That's right. They support each other. And that's where we're going to take this conversation next. Because I wanted to, you know, say to our listener, 
if you're hearing yourself in us or you're saying to yourself, well, that's not very nice, right? Like, you know, I just want to say like this, this is a phase of my life, right? This is a phase of Glendalee's life. And I'm sure it's a phase of your life as well, where you were like, wait a minute, everything is kind of upside down here in some way, shape or form. Your experience doesn't have to have been exactly the same. But I think that what we're pointing to here is a pattern where we're like, wait a minute, something is fishy here. I've been sold a bill of goods and I'm not buying it. So what I also want to point to is Glenda Lee, you started doing what I call your own revelation project. Yeah. You started saying, okay, I am going to start turning the world right side up and I'm going to do it stone by stone. And Glenda Lee and I chose our card today. And guess what it was? It was the stone. Thank you very much. And those stones became the building blocks for what you came to learn. And so I would love for you to help us now to build the foundation for the next part of our conversation, because this is where I am just going to say to my listener, hang on to your hat. (laughs) It's fascinating what Glenda Lee came to discover and started to put together basically what I call the puzzle pieces that began to formulate the bigger picture. And suddenly, eureka moment after eureka moment started to happen. So take it away. So first of all, I just want to explain that patriarchy is different than masculinity. Patriarchy is a cultural model that has been forced upon all of us, men and women alike. Masculinity is something entirely different. That's what each man is involved in in his personal self-discovery process. So I'm going to set that aside now. And I want to just take a moment to read this one excerpt because I think it points to what you're saying. So... Patriarchy, a social system of domination that arose as men of power needed a way to protect their assets. It grew out of ownership. A man's wife, children, and slaves were at one time, and in some places still are, considered his property. Masculinity, on the other hand, is the essence of maleness, which often manifests as protection. Stronger males are called on to protect weaker females and children. Through time, patriarchy distorted the natural behavior of masculine protection into masculine domination. The masculine function of a protective husk became, in the pattern of patriarchy, overbearing and intent on stunting the growth of the germ. The term patriarchy as used here, refers to social organization, not masculine identity. And there also sets the tone for what you referred to here as the husk and the germ. Yes. Now that's what I'm going to talk about. Okay. So within those six letters that start, that are the first quote, word of Genesis, Beit Rachel of Shin Yad Tav, there are three pairs of husking and germing energies. And those three pairs, definitions of those three pairs are then unfolded in the following text in the entirety of the Genesis Garden of Eden story. But the, the, the description of the husk 
and the descriptions of the germ are very clear in Genesis 1, which tells the story of creation as the outer story, which is the story of the husk because the husk is always the outer element. Whereas description of the story of the Garden of Eden is the inner story because it's told through mythological images, not outer narrative. It's an inner narrative. And so this became my first revelation about how to look at these two stories. And what happens in the patriarchal interpretation is that the two stories are strung together as if they're a historical line mm-hmm. that uh, Genesis 2, 3, and 4, which is the Garden of Eden story, is a continuation of Genesis 1, which ends at, in the sixth day of creation. But when I understood the message of the letters is that, oh, no, these are two different stories. The, the Genesis 1, the evolutionary story, is the husk side of it. Genesis 2, 3, and 4, the Garden of Eden story, is the germ side of it. And the germ is always the inner element. So, And the germ is what creates all the possible possibilities. The husk is just the protective part that protects that possibility until it actually ripens into the reality. (laughs) So we have in the evolutionary, in the outer story, is an evolution that actually matches what science has come up with. We have light. That's the start of it. Then we have the earth is uh, without form and void. That's the darkness of space. Then we have somewhere in there is the moon, but the basic evolution of the earth is water. The earth is covered with water first, then the plants appear, and then the animals appear, and then the human beings appear. So that is the actual order of evolution on our planet. Earth covered with water, then the land, I forgot that part, the land appears, then the plants, then the animals, then the human beings, in that order. Then it stops. That's the end. It's it's the sixth day. And on the seventh day, the patriarchal interpretation is God rested. Well, that (laughs) is not true at all because this is the most explosive element, the seventh day. And in fact, we're still in the seventh day because it's a symbolic seventh day, which is the seventh day of the human brain becoming aware of itself. I I just want to stop right there for a minute, just because my whole body is getting just chills up and down, up and down, up and down. And I think that it's because it's teeming with life below the surface. Bubbling with possibility. Bubbling with possibility. And this is, I want to say to my listener, this is where, you know, my father would have said, patience, grasshopper. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Rome was not built in the day. He, all of these expressions, he would he would be telling me. The pieces are coming together. The pieces, we're percolating here. We're just yeah, getting started. Yeah. And so, and I also want to point to the mess. I want to point yeah. to the mess and the chaos. It looks like a mess. It looks like a mess because it takes all these ingredients. Mm-hmm. To come to all possible possibilities, I mean, we don't know what those ingredients are. How can we know what they are? We have a brain that wants to count things. And all possible possibilities is beyond counting. You cannot count to that number. So how are you going to know what all the pieces are? 
That's right. There is a method to the madness, as they say. There's yes. It's just trying to figure it out right now. Like there is, there is some magic happening in this chaos. So take us to church. Take us somewhere next. I'm just thinking about <laughs> this. What your inner voice said in the beginning when you talked about oh, things are not what they appear to be. Things are not what they appear to be. That there is way more going on here. And as you are deciphering this meaning, I'm wondering what, when you figured this out, like, oh, wait, like this is the set. We're still in the seventh day. Like, my God. We're still in the seventh day. Yes. Seven, because seven is the number of all possible possibilities. And that's why one of the menorahs has seven candles with the fourth candle is the one in the middle. I don't want to go into resistance and what's the other side of that explosion. That's too, too much to try to convey through this, but the seven always remember, well, even in dice, (laughs) seven is the magic number because there's so many different, there's more possibilities of how to put dice into the number seven. That has the most possibilities for Mm -hmm. combinations. Mm -hmm. So Seven is the, in the Kabbalic coding system is, is the number that represents the fertility, the actual accomplishment of all these all possible possibilities. Now I want to say something about all possible possibilities because I always go here. Imagine an apple tree full of apples and all the seeds in all of those apples and how every one of those seeds can be planted into a tree and how every one of those trees can be full of apples that are full of seeds and that this can happen every single generation forever, as long as there is an earth over and over. And so you cannot count the number of possibilities. It's impossible because you never know when infinity is going to end or if it's going to end. It's an impossibility, but it is a fact that that will happen that the seeds are there and the seeds have the possibility. So it, it it's right there. Okay. Now let's talk about the husk and the germ, because this is where the masculine and the feminine yeah. things just start getting really interesting and how it relates to the brain. So in the garden of Eden, which is where we're going to go on the seventh day, supposedly the story starts all over again, because in Genesis one, Male and female created he them. That's how it ended. Now, suddenly in Genesis 2, here's man made out of the soil and God blows breath into him and he's put into a garden and he's told to name all the animals. And supposedly this is some special category for this man. And then God says, but you don't have a help me. Well, what does that mean? And then Adam is put to sleep and one of his ribs is taken out and this is a woman. And here you go. Now you have dominion over her. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't actually say that. (laughs) I can't remember which chapter they get their names in. But before Eve is created, the verse says, where is the help me? But then right after that is Adam is given a commandment. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because if you eat it, you will die. Then the verse right after that says, oh, 
you need to help me. We'll, we'll make a help. So that Adam is put to sleep. A rib is taken. The woman is created out of that rib. And then Adam has woke up here. Here she is. Here's your, here's your help me. And then it says, now the man must cleave unto this woman. And I can't remember the rest, the rest of that verse. I haven't studied Genesis in a long time. That's okay. We'll give you a pass, but it's all in the book. Now, patriarchy has never talked about this verse because this verse says that Adam must cleave unto her, mm-hmm. not the other way around. It's not that she must be his helpmate. It does define her as a helpmate, but there's only one thing she does in this entire story that makes her a helpmate, and nobody's ever figured that out except <laughs> me. That's what the secret dowry is. So these are the words that were spoken. They never focused on that he cleaves to her. Right. It was so, and so from that place. Yeah. She was just always defined as a helpmate, but it never defined in the book what she does as a helpmate. Those were left to all the ministers of all the churches in the whole patriarchal paradigm who decided that the helpmate is the wife who meekly does whatever her husband wants. He's the one that gets to dominate her. That was defined by the ministers, not by this story in Genesis, even though they all referred to it. No, what happens to her is that pretty quickly after she's created, she talks to the serpent and the serpent says, well, guess what? Here, There's a fruit here that if you eat this fruit, you will have all the knowledge in the world, including the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, well, that sounds like a good thing. I think I should do that. And so she takes the fruit and eats it and neither of them. And then she gives it to Adam and he eats it too. And what happens? This is never talked about. The eye, the eyes of them both are opened. So this is a story about the interior of the human mind, of the human psyche. So their eyes have already been opened. They're human beings. So what eyes are these? What eyes are these? This is my question. What eyes are these? Now, you're never going to go to church and find anybody who ever talks about these eyes being opened about or about what they are, because they just skip all this part because they don't know what's going on. These are the eyes of the frontal lobe, because in the brain, the frontal lobe is the only part of the brain that's actually human. The whole rest of the brain evolved during well, it, the evolution started a long time ago, but that our actual human brain can be recognized by its reptilian components, its mammalian components, its hominid components, but most scientists have not figured that out. And then finally, its human component. And the human component is the prefrontal cortex. It's the part that is right behind our forehead. It is a very small piece compared to the big, large rest of the brain, but it's the most important. And yet the the brain has to be whole. It needs all those other parts. It just needs to work with them differently. Okay, so I'm going to read this little passage and see if it helps. The prefrontal cortex was the last neural substrate to emerge in the human brain. That makes her potentially the most complex and the most advanced neural tissue available. 
However, she remains unrecognized by the neocortex, which keeps her from being fully activated. This, I believe, is our biggest problem, the so-called human problem. We do not recognize that the frontal lobes contain our identity, and in this lack of recognition, the neocortex has stolen the thunder of the frontal lobes. We all pay dearly for it. This is Adam's plight, as well as our own. He is stuck in a failure to recognize quagmire. He desperately needs some help. This is my interpretation. He has been asked to name his helpmate, and he can't because he doesn't know who she is. He doesn't recognize the human part of himself, which is this prefrontal tissue in the human brain. Because the sad fact is that without a prefrontal cortex, we can actually look like a human and we can partially act like a human. There would be some distinct things that are missing, like empathy would not be there. Insight would not be there. Foresight would not be there. The ability to plan for the future would not be there, nor would any personal or social awareness be there. However, people without those qualities operate every day in the world. Lots of times we call them psychopaths or sociopaths because they're not using the human part of their brain. They're using the calculating part of the brain, which is the neocortex, and they're using the emotions of domination, which are the reptilian part of the brain, the reptilian and mammalian part of the brain, but they're not using the human parts of the brain. So people can look human. It isn't their looks that define them as human, really. It's really their behavior. And of course, in the Bible, there's a very famous passage that says, by their fruits shall they be known. Again, fruits all have seeds and seeds are the pattern of uh, life. The fruits of life are always nurturing and growing. Growth is the one element of life that is easily recognized, which is why the Muslim flag has a green emblem on it, because mm -hmm. it's referring back to the, it's actually the burning bush, which is another image. At any rate, growth is what human awareness is designed to do personal growth, always personal growth, personal self-discovery. And it's the frontal, it's the prefrontal cortex that engages in all acts of personal growth and personal self-discovery. And so in that seventh day, yes, in that seventh day, when this part of the Genesis story begins, that is where this prefrontal cortex becomes aware, correct? Yes. It becomes aware if we are involved in the process of personal growth and self-realization. But if we're not, it, it'll knock on the door. It'll keep knocking on the door. I always call it the dog at the back door asking to be let in over and over and over again. It won't stop. It won't stop. It keeps asking. It keeps asking. And we keep saying now, so we can take this conversation in a couple of directions. One thing I want to ask is how do you identify that? And is it important? Cause you can say like, no, that's not important. Did you identify that that part of the brain is the feminine because of the Kabbalah? It, because of the inner outer. It all goes back to the basic pattern. Inner is feminine, outer is masculine. Did, look at our bodies. Our inner, a woman's reproductive organs are interior to her body. A man's reproductive organs are exterior to his body. 
that's just kind of a basic pattern. The husk is outer, the germ is inner. It happens to be the focus of the evolutionary parts of the brain. The reptilian is focused outward to survival and status it's, or survival and territory in that on the reptilian level. It's always survival and territory and mating. Mating is part of territory. Then in the emotional limbic part of the brain, the focus is inward, but it's not visual. It's interior with feelings and hunches and emotions. Okay. And those are interior directed. Then the neocortex, the focus is outward and it's visual. And that all takes place in the back of the brain, right in the back of the head. If you take your hand and put it on the back of your head, that's where that part of your brain is. It's the visual center. Okay. So the prefrontal cortex has a visual center, but it's inward. Mm. So it's not focused outward. It's focused inward. Personal and social awareness is an inward look. It's an inward perspective. The brain is looking inward, trying to figure out what those feelings are, what those emotions are. What is this pattern that I'm behaving in a certain pattern and it's going to reap a certain set of consequences? Is that what I want or is that what I don't want? So in other words, the inner, it's the revelation project. It's yes. the, it's the part of the brain that starts to say, what is wanting to be revealed? It's the part of the brain that lets the dog in, right? It's the part of the brain that says, what's a mystery going on here? What? Right. What is all of this about? So it's making sense now. It's taking all of the signs and symbols and emotions and patterns. And now it's synthesizing and making sense. That's personal and social awareness. Okay. All of that is personal and social awareness. Which I would say a lot of chaos is created. Oh, I wouldn't say it's so much created as, as observed. Observed observed. Uh, there's a lot of chaos involved because as you're looking for personal and social awareness, there are so many things that are catching your, your sight. It's like you're observing a young mother interact with her kids. You're observing yourself interact with your own kids, with yourself. You're observing yourself interact with yourself, with your feelings, with your thoughts, with your insights, with your intentions. Mm-hmm. All of this, and no, none of this is taught. We're, we're on our own. We, each of us, on the journey of self-discovery, we are gathering information from so-called experts, and then we're trying to apply it to ourselves in our daily activities. Mm-hmm. But no one teaches us how to do that. All we have to work with is our brain. And most of us don't know that the reptilian and the mammalian and the hominid are always trying to jump in there and say, me too, me too, me too. And you can't do that. Or you can do this. Or if you do that, you're going to be sorry or whatever messages are interfering with what you're actually trying to accomplish, which is self-discovery. Okay. And I think at one point in your book, you actually say, you, or you use the reference, those parts of the brain are all trying to figure out like who's the head chef or who's going to drive the car today. And it's like this constant argument or conflict until that prefrontal cortex starts to kick in. 
right? The prefrontal cortex, the more, the more that we hold on to the stones of our own self-knowledge, this is the thing I know about myself. I know this to be true about myself. The more we hold on to that, the more we build a foundation of self-discovery, of how we are operating, the more that the messages coming from the reptilian and mammalian with their disruptions saying, no, I think you better think about that again, the more that the prefrontal cortex will quieten those. Okay. It never happens quickly. It's a very long process and it goes on forever because as you are in the process of self-discovery, you become more refined. Mm-hmm. I had a dream. I, I think I'm, I'm positive. I showed it in that book. I, I wrote it in the book. I had a dream when I was at the community. I dreamt that I had sex with a woman who was wearing a white silk blouse and a black velvet skirt. And when that dream ended, there was an explosion and it felt like an orgasm, but it was on the outside of my body. Like I was an egg and it Mm. was all around my body. And I was like, what was that? I just couldn't even fathom what it was about. But a year later I thought, you know what? Because this woman was very refined. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know what? This is who I want to become. She's my image of my balanced self, the white silk blouse and the black velvet skirt was the marriage of opposites. She was a refined woman who was wise. Mm -hmm. And I realized, okay, this is the image I've given myself for what I am heading towards. Now, I certainly hadn't attained it. Right. And you don't attain it until the minute you die. Because you're always, when you enter the path of self-discovery, it's forever. There's nothing else you're going to do besides, oh, what's that? One thing that I want to say, though, that may or may not resonate for you, but what occurs to me is something that does happen is this, you were kind of speaking to it before, this observer or this witness appears Oh, that can look and can hang back without getting all activated in fear and shame and everything. And the witness actually becomes the guiding voice, the voice of the sage that begins. And the sage is this feminine part of the brain that can see the bigger picture. So first of all, I realized that the reptilian part of the brain is masculine because it looks outward. The mammalian part of the brain is inward because it looks, it feels inward. The neocortex is the hominid part of the brain. It looks outward, literally. It's all, it's made up of all the neurons that have to do with visual awareness. The prefrontal cortex, it looks inward. And it's the first step of the path of self-discovery is this witness element who emerges spontaneously or through dedication. This is what all meditation is pointing at this part of the brain that becomes a witness to everything you are doing, thinking, imagining this element. It's there witnessing every part of it, every bit of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, this is the beginning of actually developing the powers, at least what I 
perceive as the beginning is developing this witness. Okay. And the development of the witness. So let's just say this is happening in the world right now, that it's mass Mm. chaos that produces (laughs) eventually this going within because you're so, I don't uh, like, I I don't know how this happens for other people. I know for me, it was like everything on the outside world became bare, unbearable. Yeah. Yeah. And so I went on a descent. I didn't know that this was happening, but I shut the whole world out. And I basically went dormant for nine months. And in that nine months, I was probably opening my inner eye. Like something was happening inside of me. Something was starting, something forced me to go on an inner journey. And I call that bed my cocoon for nine months, you know, where I literally was transforming. I didn't know it, but that is where I went back and remembered everything that had fractured me, everything that had scared me, Mm -hmm. everything that had shamed me, everything that uh, every regret. It was like I was revisiting the ghosts of my past. I was like Ebenezer friggin' Scrooge. Yeah, but didn't you also at the same time redefine it? Yes, I absolutely was redefining it. I was what I was doing in those moments was I was re-narrating a new story. I was seeing a totally different truth to what I had lived and experienced. And I was Mm -hmm. beginning to access insights that had before just been concepts. And I was actually having as well, and here's the difference too, I was starting to have an embodied experience because Mm -hmm. I had been so outside myself, so disconnected and so disassociated based on how the outside world had behaved and treated me, my story. Yeah. Yep. That I to go in and befriend myself and befriend mm-hmm. all of those parts. And I think in that befriending process, what I was also doing was I was creating, I was what I call coming into the mother archetype, which is more of that. She's no longer the wounded maiden that believes that she's a victim to everything. Now she's coming into like, well, hey, wait a minute. I am smart. I am intelligent. I am powerful. I am amazing. Now, did I come right out of my bed and arise like the goddess I am? No. Like the goddess you see before you today? No. You know, I crawled and clawed and, you know, feebled my way. But it was the beginning, you see. It was the beginning of a different experience and a different vision. And my ability to imagine something different began to take hold because that part of me had been gone. You see, well, yeah, that part of my um, imaginative capacity had been gone because we can't. And this is what I want to point out to my listeners. We can't be in imagination and creation if we're scared and ashamed Mm. and distracted all the time. And that's what the patriarchal pace keeps us doing. Yes, it does. The patriarchal. What do you call it? You call it the trance of unworthiness. The trance. Yes. The patriarchal trance. I love that terminology. That trance is a loudspeaker coming from the older parts of the brain. That's uh, Cinderella's stepmother. And she's spewing out all the negative 
identities and images for you of of women. Yep. You didn't clean the kitchen perfectly. You didn't. Yeah. That slipper's not going to fit you. You don't, you know, you don't belong with in a fine, fancy dress. You don't deserve to be married to a handsome prince. You don't, you know, that that is what that inner. All of those negative messages. And so self-discovery, part of the self-discovery process, not only the witness, but just self-love. You don't learn how to love others until you learn how to love yourself. And that means you're the only person who knows every ugly thing about you. Mm -hmm. Nobody else knows everyone. And you have to go to each one of those and love them openly and and forgive them all of that. And that's where you learn how to love your neighbor because you, you went through that process yourself right? and you cleared out all the stuff that wasn't loving. Mm -hmm. And so what I love about this is that that's in fact, what you then continue to do is you continue to now interpret the stories of the Bible through this lens that is, wait a minute, there's if I'm to look through this lens of the inner journey, what do these stories then mean? Like yeah. David and Goliath. For my listeners, this book, it is mind-blowing, and there are so many revelations along the way. But Glenda Lee, there's this way of now, I think for everybody listening, to understand that there's this whole new appreciation that I'm developing for a new way to look at these parables, these stories. Oh, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Well, that it was one of the reasons I went to fairy tales. Yeah. There are more fairy tales with a feminine hero that most of us are have grew up with like Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, Rapunzel. And these are all archetypes. One of the things I say in my book, this was a kind of a revelation for me. There's only one storyteller. There's only one story on earth, one storyteller, and it is the human psyche. And the only story it tells is its own. Okay, here, I'm going to read this. 197. Every story told is told by the human psyche which is the ultimate storyteller. And every psyche tells the vision of itself, its own becoming or its own stagnation, as the case may be. The story you've just read, the myth of Genesis, is a hero's journey of neural integration. And I would say a a heroine's journey if you're a woman. Yeah. Though through it, we learn that the potential and desire to connect, integrate, and manifest wholeness whether emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually, is promoted by feminine, nurturing, mothering energy originating from a frontal lobe agenda. We need more of this connecting energy. Connecting is the opposite of conflicting energy in our lives to heal and soothe the separation and loneliness that plague us in our patriarchal compartmentalized and fragmented illusions. Mic drop. Yeah. (laughs) So this book is fascinating. I just want to point out to 
my viewers who are looking at this, she does also an incredible job at the end too of helping you to understand the nine archetypes that she studied in the Kabbalah. And again, like I could not recommend this book enough, but I want to circle back Glinda and say, what is it? And I love this part too, about the, because it looks like an apple. Well, it's showing the flame element. The flame element is the central element of all the Hebrew letters. All the Hebrew letters were, letters were created out of that flame element. And the flame always refers to the feminine impulse of generation, which is of gestation, generation, gen and gest, genesis, generate, generosity. It's all gestation. Right yeah. And so the the message is, of course, we humans are this breakthrough species. We do not belong to evolution. We belong to the future. And we are trying to tame the reptilian, mammalian, and hominid parts of the brain to bring themselves under the agenda of the frontal lobe, which I call the angelic lobe because... That is really our human identity. We will eventually become an angelic species. We will nurture one another rather than harm one another. Harm one another. We will, I don't know a better way to say that. We long to create a culture in which everyone is nurtured, in which everyone has their needs met, and we all grow into fully realized adults who can actually use the natural processes of the planet Earth to support us without also destroying those natural resources. Because, of course, if we destroy them, we're going to destroy ourselves. So we have to, if we're going to continue on planet Earth, we are going to have to create that within ourselves. So this is the journey we're all on. I keep saying we're all on the Titanic. We better figure out how those rowboats actually work. Mm-hmm. The, the analogy is we, the more we nurture the feminine aspects of the brain, which we all have. And in fact, if you look at the human body itself compared to the evolutionary bodies that came before them, we have a much more feminine silhouette than the Neanderthals and the pre-human, and they were never human they were always pre-human species that came before us. So we are all a more feminized image than all the creatures that came before us. Mask, whether we're a man or a woman, we're mostly because we're hairless. That Yes. And how would you say, Glenda Lee, that we would nurture those feminine aspects? Like, do you have thoughts on that? Well, we are, we're doing it. As we speak, you can kind of see what's going on in our, like in our politics. You see the Democrats and the Republicans, they're very polarized. They're very, they're far, they're polarized. And the polarization is revealing because the Republicans have chosen to model themselves after the dominating pattern, Mm -hmm. which is they're going to force people to do uncomfortable things. They're going to force women not to have a choice. They're going to 
I don't want to get into other stuff. The Democrats, on the <laughs> other <smart> hand, woman. <laughs> yeah, the Democrats, on the other hand, want to, Biden says, we want to build the center out and the bottom up. He's talking about equalizing the wealth of, of our culture onto all the strata of society, whereas the, the Republicans want to give everything to the rich people who already have more than they possibly can use. Mm-hmm. So you see it in this polarization. And I, you know, I have friends who are Republicans. I'm not trying to chastise them, but I am saying they are taking the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. That is not the choice that's going to lead us into a livable future. Mm-hmm. First of all, because they're embracing the oil structure, monetary structure, and instead of the sustainable structure. Well, and beneath all of that, that domination and control that need is actually a model of scarcity and a fear of scarcity. So there's a very kind of fear-based, you know, and again, like I see that on both sides actually in different ways. But one of the things that I think that, like you were saying, it's like the frontal, the prefrontal cortex is the unification. It's she's also the one who when we talk about nurturing these feminine aspects, we're talking about collaboration. Yes. We're talking about co-creation. We're talking about partnership model. We're talking about, you know, this is where the masculine and the feminine come together to create, like you said. Now we go right back to the very beginning of our talk because you said that these letters all came together to create Oh, right. The beginning. And so if we think about it, just symbolic, we think to ourselves, like, how much more polarized could it get? I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. I'm kind of afraid to know. But at some point here, there's also this law of these hermetic universal laws that also come into play. Hold, 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 you know, until like suddenly everything has to kind of come back. But with that, what I'm hearing is that there's the pressure that that makes kind of, you know, again, these are faulty metaphors in some ways, but that pressure that creates the diamond, the the grit that creates the pearl. And that that this time the awakening actually becomes this awakened prefrontal cortex that can I was blind and now I can see. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna tell a little story that I've actually not shared with my I've never shared it before with my audience. At some point in reading your book, I started sobbing. And I started sobbing because five years before I was born, my mother suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And I grew up never knowing this. But I knew that my mother was different. And I don't mean just a patriarchalized mother, as all of us have had, you know, and know that, you know, none of us escape, but that there was something actually, she could, I believed, again, because this is what we do, we internalize the things that happen to us. And we believe that they're us, we believe that, like, oh, I'm not lovable. My mother can't remember Mm -hmm. what foods I like. She can't remember 
how to get me somewhere. She can't mm-hmm. direct me. She doesn't, she doesn't know the names of my friends. She doesn't remember what I do or what colors I like. All of that's because she doesn't love me. All of that's because she doesn't love me. Yeah. And so I think it was almost nine or 10 years ago now, I was diagnosed with adult ADD. And of course, I now recognize that as a, a trauma response mm-hmm. of Again, growing up and being told, you know, that uh, like you, like somebody slamming my fingers in and like missing the fact that I just wanted to know the spelling. I wasn't cheating. Yeah. You know, or, 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 and feeling so misunderstood in every place I ever went. And so I never knew this about my mother. And she had maybe mentioned it Mm. once in my whole life. But she had said it the same way that she would say, like, pass the potatoes. Mm. It was like, oh, yeah, I suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage at some point. And, you know, and. Now I can't remember anything. Well, exactly. Okay. I can't remember anything. And not but only I can still I, love you. Yes. But I still love you. So I finally discover this in my adult life because after I was diagnosed with ADD, I ended up taking her to the same center that diagnosed me, which was the Hallowell Center in Sudbury. And it so happened that out of his entire stable of doctors, we happened to get the only one that day (laughs) that actually worked with the survivors of aneurysms families, not the survivors themselves, she told us, because the survivors don't think there's anything wrong. Mm. And when we actually found out and, you know, the doctor just gave her a typical neuro examination. Mm -hmm. And at some point, the doctor made the connection and said, you know, to my mother, have you ever experienced a traumatic brain injury? And my mother said, yes, in 1965, I suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage. And then we went through five hours of testing. I tell you this story because the findings that came back were I mean, she was like, let's go shopping. She didn't care about any of it. She was like, are you are you serious right now? Like she's my mom is like, you know, at the end of the day, she can be real tired and sore. But the next day, it's like a brand new day it's mm. because none of it stays, you know, and yeah. it's all my all I have with my mom really is the present moment. And not to say that she doesn't have some memory, she does. But what I've come to learn is that what the doctor explained was that that was the area that it did the most damage Oh, is that it destroyed her capacity for insight. And it destroyed that Mm. those parts of the brain that have the ability to see the bigger picture and connect every yes and connect everything together. Yes. And so I sometimes, you know, I look at what destroyed her capacity for insight is what grew mine. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> there are these ways that we are, that the seeds of, of also our trauma become sometimes our greatest. Oh, yeah. Gifts. My husband, this is my, the, my husband's interpretation of that is I never want to change the past. I don't care what happened in the past. I don't want to change it because I'm real happy with here. And yeah. if you change that, I might not get here. And this is that going back in that quantum place that we were kind of talking about. It's like, here we are. <laughs> we can't change the past, but we what we can do is we can begin to tell a new story 
and we can actually begin to heal these fragmented parts by tending to those inner, those inner landscapes. And it, it turns out that as human beings, we actually need love. That's the, the stone, if you will. It's the stone. It's the bedrock. That, it's the bedrock. And patriarchy does not understand that. Patriarchy wants duty and discipline. Mm-hmm. And obedience. And obedience. But in a post-patriarchal world, love will be the, the foundation because we must n- nurture ourselves into these connected perceptions and perspectives. Yes. It's the only way to get there. And this is where coming into wholeness, it's like it begins with us. And so this is this part of your book, again, that just moved me to my core, because you bring it all together and kind of zoom out and show us what's possible for our human for the seventh day. Yeah, the seventh day. We are in the seventh day, people. We are in the seventh day. And say the possible of possibilities again. All possible possibilities. This is what the seventh day is. It is all, all possible, possible, possible possibilities. possibilities. All possible yes. possibilities are coming to fruition right now. Even as the just everything feels so hard and wrong and terrible. And somebody told me once when I was in the depths of my deepest despair, this is what it looks like when it's all working out. (laughs) (laughs) And we're screwed if we don't have humor, you know? Yeah. Like we're screwed. Well, yes, exactly. And the root word for humor and human is hume, which I think means earth or humus. We're in the seventh day and we will remain in the seventh day forever. This seventh day never ends for us because we are human beings, because we have this wonderful prefrontal cortex that rounds out our brain and gives us this ability to change everything else, change everything from the past, change everything that isn't a a yes to a yes. And this is where we're headed and we're all going to get there or we're going to die trying. I mean, literally, we are all, to borrow the words from Sarah McLaughlin, fumbling toward ecstasy. Mm. And it's it's our path. And we either embrace it or we don't. But either way, it's going to kick us around. It's going to kick us around. My goodness, <laughs> will it ever. Well, is there anything that we haven't said that we need to say? Because I just, I just have loved your seed of creation so much. I do want to say this thing. The reason Eve is the hero of the story is because she eats the fruit and doesn't die. She eats the fruit and doesn't die. And she gives the same power to Adam because he's her own brain. They both eat the fruit. They Neither of them dies, which is what was supposed to happen. But that was only going to happen if Adam ate the fruit when he was by himself. He needed the frontal lobe to round out his perspective. And that's why die in this sense means rigidity, like rigor mortis. 
Yes. If he did it by himself, he would eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he would become rigidified by it, which is what the patriarchy has done, instead of released into recognizing the whole pattern, which is the alternating current between feminine and masculine, masculine, feminine. So that's why she embodied that pattern and she had to eat the fruit first. So that's what makes her the hero. But the first thing she does is give it to him. So they both, they're both in it together. And that I want to also circle back and say that the heroine's journey includes the masculine. She always remembers him. Always. She doesn't, she always remembers him. She always loves him. And there's no domination. Mm -mm, mm -mm. It's, It's the biggest democracy of all. It's the biggest democracy of all. You are such a light. Thank you so much for this incredible interview. I just adore you. Thank you so much, Glenda Lee. And I uh, will put you know the links of several of um, our references in the show notes. And for our listeners, go get this book. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.